Hello everyone, you are listening to Black Adoptees Identities. I am your host, Christelle Pellicure, and I am a coach and a multidisciplinary creative. Please join me to explore what identity means for adult adoptees and how they form their identity for their own adoption journey. In this podcast, you will hear a variety of views from adult adoptees about their own experience of adoption and how adoption has impacted them and what lessons they have learned along the way. Please note that the guests have been courageous in sharing their stories and some of the content and subject matters can be emotionally challenging and distressing for some individuals. Please use your own judgment whether to continue to listen or not and do look after yourself. And if you are affected by some of the issues discussed, please seek appropriate support and help. In this episode, I am in conversation with Tony Hines. Tony is an interracial adoptee and author of The Son with Two Moms. We discussed his identity formation while growing up in an interracial and some gender household. We spoke about his work as a training specialist at the Center for Adoption Support and Education and his advice to families around cultural and racial awareness. We also talk about the impact of loss and grief in his life. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Black Adoptees Identities. I am Christelle Pellecoeur, your host. And today we are welcoming Tony Hines with us on the podcast. And I've been waiting for quite a while to, to have this conversation with Tony. So I'm really excited to have Tony with us today. Tony was adopted by his parents, Mary and Janet, in the mid-1990s. He wrote about his experience growing up as both an interracial adoptee and as a child growing up in an LGBTQ-headed household in his memoir, The Son with Two Moms, a text that has been seated in the family court system to highlight best practices. Today, Tony is an advocate for family like his, having served on the board of directors for organizations that help to highlight adoptive families from diverse upbringings. He has been invited to be a speaker at conferences on adoption and foster care throughout the United States and has a passion for speaking up for children and family touched by challenges in the adoption and foster care system. Tony completed his master's thesis in sociology on the psychology of children within the same-sex aided household and has now completed his PhD studies in language, literacy, and culture at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where he has begun work on his dissertation, which focused on social connectedness among adult interracial adoptees. As a training specialist at the Center for Adoption Support and Education, Tony Hines has designed innovative training curriculum that helps families and professionals respond to evaluation and assessment tools that encapsulate holistic picture of adoptees and foster youth. Tony, welcome. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? I'm well. Great, great. 
Uh, so I've just read your bio and uh, very impressive. Uh, you've done a lot of work uh, on the adoption space for a while and you are doing studying as well uh, around adoption. So you are very busy. Uh, but I would be really interested to hear from you if you could start us from the beginning, uh, from your adoption. Tell us a little bit more of the background of when, how old you were when you were adopted and from where uh, to where. <laughs> Right. Oh, great question. And so my story, like all adoption stories, starts with loss. And in my particular case, that loss started really in that first few months after I was born. I was separated from my birth mom, whom really wanted to take care of me and also take care of my sister. But she happens to be schizophrenic. And so she felt as though, you know, I'm not ready right now to take on this responsibility. So for the first year or so of my life, I actually spent mostly with a friend of the family, friend of my biological family, and also spent some time with my birth mom as well. When I was around one years old, one and a half, I'm told, and I have to say I'm told because as adoptees, we just have to go off the information that we're given a lot of times about our origin stories. So I'm told that it was around when I was a year and a half old or so that I was placed in an orphanage. And that happened because my mom was taking me to an orphanage to stay for a weekend or a couple of days. And it was on one of those weekends, on one of those days in which she was told, either you need to leave Tony here indefinitely, or you need to bring him home, but you can't keep doing this back and forth. So she elected to have me stay in the orphanage, probably with the thought in mind, hey, I'll probably come and take him later and get him back. But I stayed there for around a year and a half before I was matched with my adoptive parents, who were at first my foster parents, who became my adoptive parents then when I was about five years old, two women, two white women. And... It's always a tricky question when I'm asked, you know, what age or how old were you when you were adopted? Well, on the one hand, I was five years old when I was adopted by Mary Hines and Janet Simons. But on the other hand, I wasn't really after that because after the initial adoption, my particular adoption was actually overturned by a panel of judges who had decided that a white same-sex-headed household wasn't the right wasn't the right household to raise me in a black child, and so they overturned the adoption, and I was no longer an adoptee anymore. Eventually, after a long custody battle, I became what we call in the state of Maryland the ward of a state, meaning that. Mary and Janet were my legal guardians, but not my adoptive parents. But I grew up until I was around 15, 16 years old, thinking that I was actually adopted. So that's kind of a, a long way of saying that I was kind of five years old when I was adopted, but technically I wasn't really adopted again until I was actually 19 years old is when I was formally adopted again. Wow, that's um, that must be quite complicated in the mind of a child. I suppose you thinking you are adopted, but you are not. So you found out when you were 19 that you are officially adopted. How did this impacted the way you've seen your family? That has this been a bit confusing? The, the fact that you thought you were adopted, but you're not. For me, no, honestly, because 
I always felt like Mary and Janet were my moms, despite of what the courts had to say about it. And every morning when I woke up, they were either in the next room or downstairs or right outside my door. They took me to soccer practice. They helped me out with my homework. They embarrassed me when I was a teenager. You know, all of these normative things that go along with the experience of being in a family structure. They made mistakes. They made mistakes related to race. They made mistakes related to talking about how I came to be adopted, talking about birth family things. But when I was formally adopted, when I was 19, it was actually something that meant a lot more to my mother, Janet. One of my moms, Mary, passed away when I was younger. And so it was really in my adolescent and teen and young adult years, it was just myself. It continues to be myself and Janet. And Janet adopted me when I was 19 years old. And it was a huge day for both of us. But it meant more to her because she had been fighting for so long from a legal standpoint and waiting for this day. For me, it just meant that now I could get my driver's license because in the United States and in the state of Maryland, it's just much harder to do that for legal reasons when you have someone that's a guardian to you when you don't have your original birth certificate, when you don't have your social security number because of some of these things. So for me, that was exciting, but we were always a family and there was not one thing that was gonna change that for me, especially from a legal standpoint. I'm very interested to hear around how you form your identity as a black child being raised by two white moms, because the society tell us that it should be raised by a man and a woman and to look up to those people to to form your identity. But in your case, it was two moms and you, you wrote your book around your experience with two moms. And you also did some studying around uh, your master's around that topics. So I would be really interested if you could share your experience, but also how that's impacted in your identity or didn't impact. It definitely impacted me. Everything in your life impacts you. And growing up with two different race parents from my own, growing up with two different gendered parents and myself, definitely an experience that, of course, shaped and formed who I am today. When I was growing up, what stuck out to me the most was my family sticking out. So it was going to the grocery store, going to restaurants and people looking at our family and me wondering, hey, why are people looking at us? I'm only six years old. Why are they looking at me? Why are they looking at you? Who are they looking at? It didn't take me long to figure out that they were looking at us because we were this different raced family from each other, but also you had these two white women and this black boy, and that that was something that stood out where I'm from and where most people are from. And it really led to me having questions about why that was, but it also led to me answering questions from other people who had similar questions about how we became a family. I would get questions like, why are you a different race from your parents? You know, or from a gender standpoint, do your moms sleep in the same bed as each other? Who's the man in the relationship? Do you have any men in your life? Do you know what it means to be Black? These are all questions that I got growing up at a very young age. So at a very young age, I'm doing internal identity work that 
isn't being asked of other children who are my age. So when I'm nine years old, I'm thinking to myself, am I black enough? Am I manly enough? Am I enough? Am I authentic enough in all of who I am? And that's an experience that a lot of adoptees go through, that a lot of adoptees have. What was really helpful for me was one, being honest with myself about the uncertainty that I had surrounding these multiple identity statuses that I was holding, and also peer relationships. My moms were really well versed in history. They taught me about Black history. They taught me about Black American history. I learned about the civil rights movement. And I learned about figures that aren't talked about in K through 12 education. They gave me hats and of sports figures that were these historically great Black sports figures. So I all, and they listened to Motown music, this Black art form. So I really grew up thinking that being Black was something to be admired and that being Black was something that was a strength. But at the same time, they still weren't Black themselves. They didn't have that experience. And they also didn't have some other pieces of education. So they were giving me kind of the historical lens and that type of education, but they didn't know how to take care of Black hair. They didn't know what lotions worked for my skin. So in the wintertime, my lips were cracked, my skin was gray, my hair was dry, and they kept my hair very low. And so I didn't know it at the time, but these were all markers, all things that other people were seeing about me. And they were probably saying to themselves, this kid is this kid is struggling a little bit. This kid is a little bit not lost, but in need of support. And I got support through peer relationships when I was in high school. So I had peers that were black. And fortunately, they were really honest with me and they would tell me, hey, this is how we take care of our hair. This is the lotion that I'm using. This is the Vaseline that I'm using during the wintertime that's helpful for my skin. These are some other things that you might not be aware of musically that I can put you on to. This is a handshake that we do that you should do and you should practice. So all of these things were helpful to me because they made me feel like, okay, now I already have the historical lens about Blackness and about racialized pride in that way. And now I'm also kind of getting this cultural lens too to go along with that through these peer relationships. And even though I still feel different from my peers because my upbringing is still one in which I'm going home and I have white parents every night, I'm not shying away from that fact as being something that doesn't mean that I'm more or less Black than anybody else. And when I was able to embrace this kind of bicultural nature of my upbringing and also embrace Blackness at the same time, it was really helpful to me. And it also allowed me to be critical of people who would tell me things like, your moms are going to hell for being gay. And I would say, that's your belief. It's not my belief. I think it's wrong. And it doesn't make me less of a man. It doesn't make me less of a Christian. It doesn't make me less Black to feel the way that I feel. And I'm just going to go out into the world with my belief system. And I logically know that my moms are extremely good people. And I know that loving who you want to love is not an act 
that is sinful. And so I also felt comfortable, especially as I got into my college years, expressing that. And no, I didn't have men who were in the house with me, but those peer relationships were primarily with young boys my own age. So that was helpful to get that kind of male gaze. And I did have some mentors in my life who were male mentors growing up. My moms were aware that, hey, we're two strong women, but that doesn't mean that we can raise a boy by ourselves and that he does need a gendered influence who's a male influence in his life and also some black male older influence in his influences in his life too. So those things were helpful to me, but it doesn't mean that my upbringing was devoid of racialized trauma or racism or microaggressions from my adoptive parents or from community members or anything like that. But it did mean eventually that I was able to gain my own awareness and reflection on the things that I did have growing up that some of my fellow adoptees didn't have that I feel allowed me to come to process my identity in ways that perhaps happened a little bit earlier than it does for some adoptees out there who grew up in complete racial isolation, for example. That's very interesting because it, it sounds that you have received quite a lot of support, uh, both from your parents, uh, but also from your peers. Uh, but at the end, then you say that you still face some racialized racism. And so what has been the most difficult, you think, for yourself in your experience as an adoptee, uh, being raised in uh, two, race, two different races? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, one of the most difficult things is the space in between that I felt I've had to occupy at different times, meaning I do love my parents. and. I rarely say that on podcasts because I feel as though as adoptees, a lot of times we're kind of told or forced into saying things like that. But I say that for a very specific reason. And I say that here because when my mom is sending me things in relation to the news or race or other topics, I really just want to respond to her in ways that are loving because of the support, because of the connection that my mom and I have. But I also recognize that there's a disconnect in our experiences, and that's highlighted through some of the things that she'll send me sometimes. It's highlighted in some of the ways that friends of my adoptive family may have talked to me when I was growing up. I knew that these people had a lot of love for me, but at the same time, I also knew that they didn't get and understand who I was. On the other end of the spectrum, when I'm interacting with people who are my peers, who are Black peers of mine, a lot of times subjects that come up are subjects that when I was growing up revolved around saying things like white people, right? White people are are this or that because of the experiences that they that we all have had. And there were times when I was growing up when there would be some of this impulse in me to say, well, not all white people are like that, you know, and my my mom is kind of like this or that. And I realized at one point in time that I wasn't going to do that anymore, that I wasn't going to try to defend whiteness to, to an extent, and that I didn't need to try to defend my mom. I didn't need to do that. 
And I could also critique my mom and my mom's plural. And that that could be helpful for me as an individual. But at the same time, it does mean that I have to be critical of my parents in ways that are racialized, in ways that people from non-adopted households and or same race households a lot of times don't have to do or aren't thinking about to do. And at the same time, feeling as though if I don't do that in ways that are conducive to really making sure that we're holding people both accountable while being empathetic, if I'm not doing that, then I'm also failing not only myself, not only other adoptees out there, but other Black interracial adoptees. So the work that I do now is for myself, but it's also for other Black interracial adoptees, Black adoptees, period, out there. And I bear the weight of that, both in a positive sense and a negative sense. And I bear the weight of that because I have chosen to be a critical thinking adoptee, but also because I was forced into this life by virtue of me being adopted, by virtue of me being adopted interracially. And so there's some challenges that come along with that that you can't foresee when you're five, six, nine, 10 years old, but that continue to manifest throughout your life course. And I notice you use the term interracial uh, rather than transracial. Is is that because as an adoptee, again, we, we get a lot of uh, labels, you know, it's adoptive, black, interracial, transracial. Is there a specific reason if chosen the word interracial rather than transracial? I don't know if you do use the word transracial, but I've noticed in your bio and as we talk now that you use the word trans- uh, interracial. Uh, is that a reason behind that? <laughs> yes. No, great question. Yes, there are a couple of reasons behind that, actually. And so I should start by saying I used to use the term transracial for myself, and I used the term transracial adoptee until about 2019 or so. And that's same time that I was really getting into the thick of things with my research on interracial adoption, period. Throughout the course of my research, I discovered that the term transracial adoption was coined in the late 60s, early 70s by social workers in tandem with adoptive parents, both of whom were predominantly white, who envisioned this post-racial society for themselves, for their families, and for this narrative about adoption. And the term transracial was something that they thought really spoke to that aspiration, that this was a well-meaning aspiration. We want to transcend this idea of race playing a part in adoption. Some people in critiquing my take or other people's take on the term transracial say things like, well, transracial can also mean across. You have the transatlantic slave trade. So maybe just means across race. But that was not the intent of the creators of the term transracial when it came to adoption. It wasn't about being across race, it was about transcending race. And we learned very quickly in the years following and the decades following that emphasis on race is very important when it comes to adoption, when it comes to cross-race interracial adoption practices. And that when we have colorblind rearing practices, when we have kids who are being told 
I love you just the same as my other kids. And the love I have for you is enough. And I don't see your color. I just see you. That's actually very detrimental for the well-being of children in those homes. Yes, you do see my race. It's literally impossible for you not to see it, right? And society also sees my race and they're treating me negatively sometimes simply because of the color of my skin. And because you've said all of this colorblind mumbo jumbo to me, when I come home, I don't feel as though I can actually speak about race openly and honestly. And so up until still about the 1990s, the term transracial adoption, interracial adoption were actually used interchangeably. If you look at the literature on transracial adoption, you'll, you will actually see even in the literature, sometimes they use transracial and interracial interchangeably. And sometimes up until the early 90s, they were using interracial sometimes as a research topic. But for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, it just became more popular to use the term transracial adoption. And so that's in the mid 90s and up until today, the term that is commonly used now when referring to kids like me, adults like me, adults like you, who are coming from the households that we've come from. And I've noticed that people who don't know a lot about adoption are often confused when the term transracial adoption is used. I was in a class one time and I said, we were sharing one interesting fact about ourselves in class. And I was saying that I am a transracial adoptee. And someone came up to me at the end of class and just said, so transracial, does that mean that you want to be white? Meaning, does that mean that you want to transition to becoming a different race? The way that we understand trans today has to do typically with gender and has to do with transitioning from one gender to another or multiple genders. And so that's the way that some people think about transracial adoption. That's another reason why that term doesn't, not trying to be another race, obviously, and I don't want to exist in a colorblind world. So the term transracial adoption, transracial adoptee isn't something that fits me. Interracial adoptee felt like it fit me more, even though I don't deem that a perfect term either. And so I choose to go with that. And I tell other adoptees that you don't have to use the term interracial. If you want to use transracial, you can. Some people dislike both the term interracial and transracial and choose different terminology than that. So it's really about whatever language the adoptee names for, the, for themselves and prefers to use. But that's the language that I prefer to use. Thank you for that explanation. I think a lot of people are not aware of the historical background. So that's a really important thing to, to know. And I think words does carry a lot. So it's important to really think about how we identify ourselves. And we've got that choice as a, as a single individual. And that is part of the reason I actually called the podcast Black Adult Adoptees and not Transracial uh, Adult Adoptees because I wasn't really sure. I mean, I use the word transracial sometimes, but not always because there's something in me that doesn't really agree. And I don't actually use interracial either because it still doesn't 
fit me. So I'm still in search of where, what's word that I should uh, use for myself. But at the moment, I just, yeah, I just use the word black adoptees. And it's not ideal either, because it's not really encapsulating everything that we are. So yeah, thank you for that explanation. You are doing a lot of work now with families and adoptive children. Can you tell us a bit more what uh, that work is and uh, who you work with? Yes, sure. So I am a training specialist with the Center for Adoption Support and Education. We are an organization that really is centered around educating adoptive families, educating adoptees, birth families, kinship families on all things related to adoption and foster care. And we also are really centered around mental health for those connected to adoption. So we have a lot of clinicians who work with adoptive families. And in my role, I also train a lot of clinicians on all things adoption related. I didn't have an adoption competent therapist when I was growing up. When I was in therapy, it was after my mother Mary had died and I was in grief counseling for that. And the therapist never asked me any questions about being adopted or how it felt to lose a second mother now after being separated from my first mother. And so when I got older, I realized how impactful not having that adoption competent therapy was for me. And so I try to educate clinicians, therapists, and also I do a lot of work with adoptive parents, specifically around connections to birth family that are really important for them to make and also surrounding, of course, the topic of interracial adoption. A lot of parents feel today as though, you know, they feel I'm educated. We live in a diverse neighborhood. We attend these things. We listen to some of these podcasts. And yet their kids are still struggling. Their kids are still facing racism that their parents are often unprepared to deal with. The kids themselves are saying that their parents are sometimes saying racist things towards them. So I work with adoptive families on ways to spot what I previously called microaggressions. I just call them aggressions now. And I also work occasionally with adoptees on finding their own voice in themselves and on making sure that families are doing things that are culturally competent and that are honoring this fact that adoption isn't something that stops when we're 18 years old, that your children become adults. And if you don't treat them the right way, when they're adults, they're not going to want to be around you anymore for good reason. And when they're adults, they're going to have to be supporting themselves when all this time they could have been getting more support from you and from their community surroundings. So that's some of the work that I do in my role. You mentioned about family to be culturally competent. Uh, and I think for interracial adopted, this is one of the challenges because some of the family are not prepared, uh, especially in your case, your family were very good with history. But a lot, I know in my case, for example, my parents were not prepared in any level in terms of African history or African culture at all. So what do you, would you recommend to family when you're working with families in terms of um, culture and history? What do you recommend to them? 
The first thing I recommend is not starting from a place of racialized trauma. So for a lot of parents, the impulse will be, especially in the United States, will be around, well, let's start with talking about the transatlantic slave trade and how it affected Black Americans. That's a terrible place to start with educating your child about race. Why would you want to start educating your child about race by telling them that their race was subjugated by your race and you're their parent? If I'm a five-year-old, logically, I'm going to say, well, are you my master? Right? That is extremely problematic. But for a five-year-old, that's actually a logical conclusion to make if that's the place that you're starting from. And am I inferior? Right? Am, am I an inferior individual? Because that's what was said at that time. And so what was the reason for that? And then they would have to play defense and say, well, no, you're not inferior. This is why and racism and that. So it's better to start from a place of start with talking about musicians, start with talking about sports, start with talking about authors that are black authors that have written amazing things with people who have done amazing things. So kids can really see themselves reflected. Some parents overcorrect in that way and they say oh, okay well that's what we're going to do and we're not going to talk at all about the racial trauma there needs to be a balance there it is important to talk about those historical figures who jimmy hendrix and you know um james baldwin and bob marley and these other figures who are nelson mandela who've done these wonderful things but it's also important to bring in Hey, James Baldwin, who's an American writer and poet, was talking about social injustice that was happening to Black Americans, and he was able to do it in a very eloquent way. And he also happened to be a gay man. So he was straddling these, these worlds in which he was told that it wasn't okay for him to be Black and it wasn't okay for him to be gay. And he said, screw all of that. I'm going to tell not only my truth, but this country's truth as well in an extremely unvarnished and beautiful way. And so that's something that families can start with doing is starting with that racial pride piece. But I also tell families that they shouldn't be the only ones, or rather their kids shouldn't be the only ones that are doing work on their racial identities. If the only race that you're ever talking about in your household is Black people and you're a white family with a Black child, that's not helpful either, because the child is going to feel like it's always their responsibility to learn about their history, their culture, but it's never the responsibility of their parents to do any of that work on their own Irish ancestry, for instance, that their parents are only doing this because they want to try to make them feel comfortable. They don't really care about race, that they're just doing this for a checklist item type of thing. It's really important for parents to say to themselves, okay, Let's go to this Black History Museum, but let's also go to an Indigenous Peoples Museum as well. Let's also go to these other historical places, these other museums that represent other cultures besides the culture that's representative of our child. This is truly needing to be a space that's a multicultural space in nature. And then parents need to talk about racism. If parents can't have honest conversations with themselves about how they have been impacted by racism, the racist thoughts that they 
may have had the prejudice thoughts that they have had in different points in their lives, meaning when they were young, when they were young adults, yesterday, and they're not having honest conversations. Because if someone who's working really hard on combating racism, meaning these parents in their communities, they're still having these racist thoughts. What does that say for people that aren't even aware that they're having, that their thoughts are racist, or aren't even aware that the things they're doing in community environments are racist and racially harmful to black and brown children. And parents really need to be able to speak to that for themselves, but then also speak to their own family members who might be saying racist things, speak to their school communities who might not be actively doing racist things, but aren't doing anything. I was to share a short story. I was told this summer by a white adoptive parent that their child who's in seventh grade, that she was being called the N-word every single day at school by one of her classmates. And my next question was, well, what has the teacher done about this? And the answer I got was, well, the teacher is aware. The teacher hasn't done anything about it, though, and says that my child basically is not making it up, but there's nothing that she can really do to stop this other child. And I said, well, we need to go hire them. What about the school administration? What about the principal? And she said, well, I've also, Tony, I've gone to the principal. And principal has basically not done anything about it either. The child hasn't faced any punishment. The parents of this child haven't really been talked to either. And the school system is harmful. And I said, so what about the superintendent? The person above the principal at this other local level who can affect change in that school? Well, I haven't really done that yet, but I'm not really sure that's going to work out either. So my next thing was... What about moving schools? What about going to a different school? And the answer I got was, well, we just moved schools because and we moved to this school because it was a little bit more diverse than the other school that we were in previously. And I said, well, if your child is being called the N-word every single day, that's a code red situation. That's an experience where they're experiencing trauma every single day in their school environment. They need to be out of that school, out of that environment immediately. And that what's happening to them needs to stop. And I also had the opportunity to speak with her daughter, who was very impacted, of course, by what had been going on. So parents need to be aware of how to manage situations like that. And some parents think that that won't happen to their children. And it happens all the time. And as adoptees, we grow up and we grow up with the baggage of knowing that those things have happened to us and that our parents haven't been able to support us in the ways that we would have hoped or liked them to, but that they've been, quote, nice to us, right? It, some of some of us. And so it creates a scenario where we feel uncomfortable interacting, but we feel obligated to still interact at the same time. So for adoptees, what I would say is, especially as you get older, it's important to continue speaking your truth to your parents about how you feel now and how you felt in the past and reflecting upon your experiences. It's not just about holding them accountable. It's also about claiming your own power and realizing that what happened to you was not okay and it's okay to state that. 
and the part of process of navigating through all of the difficult challenges that come with being an interracial adoptee really need to be laid bare in order for us to, I don't like to use the word healing, but in order for us to move forward in a healthy way in our lives. Because if not, then we can sometimes get stuck and feel as though we don't have anybody to reach out to, feel as though we don't have permission to talk about these things, but we do. And there's a whole community out there of like-minded individuals now in the adoption space who are willing to support like you're doing with this podcast. Oh, thank you. That's that's so important because I think there's still a lot of adoptees who are afraid to speak up and tell the truth out there. And they really need to hear this, um, that there is support available. And the amazing work that you're doing is really important. So thank you for all that you do. It's, it's really necessary. Likewise. I wanted to go back a little bit. So you started by saying that adoption starts with loss. And you also lost your one of your mother. So I I can't just imagine that that second loss is also reigniting the first loss. So how did you, I know you mentioned about going to therapy. So how did you manage to overcome all this loss and grief in your life? And what would you say to other people who might be going through something similar? Right. That's a great question. I don't feel that I have overcome that loss and that grief. And I don't feel it's necessary for me to overcome it. I think that so often we talk about the importance of resilience and adoptees are so resilient. They're so strong. They're so this, they're so that. But what does that really mean? It just means that we're happy with the way that they've processed their trauma in ways that don't make us feel uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that they're happy. It doesn't mean that they're content. It just means that it seems like they're fine. So they must be okay. They must be strong. And so I'm fully aware that I'm still deeply affected by the losses that I've incurred in my life. And the continued therapy is something that's important for me as an adult to receive. And that adoption-competent therapy something that I've sought and that it's important for me to do as part of my my journey. When I lost my mother, Mary, who was my adoptive mother, I just felt as though nothing in my life really was supposed to go right. I had this adoptive family and we weren't perfect by any means. Mary wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect, right? But the love and the connection that we had for one another was something that was special, was something that a lot of, of people, you know, wish that they had with in a mother-son type of relationship. And so to lose, to lose my mother in that way made me feel as though I wasn't supposed to have nice things. And that led into when I was older, when I was an adult, when I was, you know, in friendships or romantic relationships, feeling as though this isn't supposed to last. Nothing that I have is supposed to last. And as hard as I try to go against the urge and feeling that way, there's still a part of me sometimes that feels as though any success that I have might be temporary. But I realize that those feelings that I'm having stem from the losses that I've incurred previously in my life. 
And that allows me to check myself and to say, no, Tony, you are worthy of whatever success that you have. You are worthy of love. You are worthy of feeling a sense of connectedness to those around you. And you don't have to try to get past the things that you've experienced. But what you do have to do is realize that, yes, those things have happened and you will have more losses in your life. Because I'm fully aware that my other adoptive mom eventually will also pass away, that people I love will also pass away. So I'm fully aware of those things. And now I'm fully aware of when these things occur. And previously, it's important for me to have people around me that I can turn to that will really continue to help me feel not only loved, but also help me recognize that the the losses that I am going to experience in the future also don't mean that losses define me. Losses don't define adoptees, but they do happen to us and they do deeply affect us. And holding both of those truths at the same time is very important in this process, this journey of finding a healthy space. And I feel that I've been able to find a healthier space by doing that in my own life. That is beautiful. And it's really good to hear. And I can see in, you know, speaking to you, I can feel that you are in, in this healthy space. Um, and you are you found yourself in a very good place. So yeah, that is very inspiring. Thank you. Can you tell us uh, about your book, The The Son of Two Moms? Um yeah, and for all the and our audience that don't know about your book, where can they find it as well? Yeah, they can find my book on Amazon, on Kindle, uh, Nook, Barnes and Noble. And it's, again, thank you so much for uh, shouting it out, called The Son with Two Moms. You can find it as well by searching the name. My name, Tony Hines. That last name is spelled H-Y and is in Nancy E-S. And as far as the book writing process, I didn't envision writing a book. I really have one of my college professors, her name is Dr. Kimberly Moffitt, to thank for that. I was in a class of hers when I was a freshman in college, and she asked us as a class to write how we cover a part of our identity. And so I went back to my dorm room and I said to myself, well, I really can't think of anything that I cover as far as my identity is concerned. Oh, I guess I don't talk about the fact that I have two moms, that they're white, that I was adopted. So there are actually a lot of things, right, that I was covering about pieces of my identity that I ended up writing about. And then I went into class. I turned it in. A few classes later, she calls me up and she asks to speak with me about what I'd written. And I thought I must have done a terrible job. Maybe I didn't do the assignment the way I was supposed to. And she says, on the contrary, that she found what I had to say really interesting and said, have you ever thought of writing a book about this? And I said, you know, people have suggested that, but I'm 19 years old at the time. Memoirs, those are for people that are over 45, 50 years old, who people who've lived fuller lives than I had felt that I lived up until that point in my life. So I didn't write it right then. But a couple of years later, I ended up finding a journal. And this journal was a journal that my mother, Mary, who had passed away, was writing in. 
and she died of cancer. So she was diagnosed in 1997, died in 2001. And in 1997, she was writing in this journal about her first chemotherapy treatments. And when I was reading that, it made me feel this wealth of emotion. And I started writing about how her journal made me feel. And it eventually led me to writing about more of my story. And eventually that's what became this book. So it's something that helped me process a lot of the things that I had experienced as an adoptee, as a Black man, as an interracial adoptee of a queer couple. And I feel it's also what led me ultimately into this space now that I'm in today, because I had no idea that I was going to be doing this for a living. And I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the processing I was able to do in that book. And is uh, your PhD now kind of an extension to all this work you've you've done over the years, but also from the book? Definitely. It really is. So you mentioned my master's thesis. So I did my master's on the psychological well-being children within the same sex-headed household, which speaks to that piece of my experience. And now... In my PhD program, I'm doing it on social connectedness among adult Black interracial adoptees. So it's really about where I am today. Selfishly, I want to know where other adults out there who've had my similar thematic experiences, how they feel, how connected they feel to others too. And so it's it's really been a great process. I've interviewed a lot of extremely thoughtful, intelligent, vulnerable adoptees who have been very gracious in sharing their time with me. And I've learned so much from them. When, looking, when, when do you finish your PhD? Hoping in May. So I'm hoping in okay. May of 2024. So I'll come back to this interview for motivation. <laughs> <laughs> you're almost there. You're almost there. This, this is amazing. You've done your journey is just so inspiring. I mean, writing a book in your your early twenties and uh, coming to to do a PhD now that's uh, amazing. I'm I'm very inspired because I started a PhD during lockdown and I never finished it. So I need to pick up. So I'm very envious that you've already almost finished. It's hard. I've it been is. doing it for a long time. A long it time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd love to speak to you even more. I've got so many questions, but I know time is ticking. So I'm gonna hand with my last question that I ask all my guests. If you had to give an advice to your younger self or to a young adoptee, what would that be? You're worthy of being loved in ways that fully embrace all of who you are. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tony, for your time. I really enjoyed speaking to you and I hope maybe... In, once you finish your PhD, maybe we can come back again, have a, a second conversation. We'd love to speak more with you. I would thank love you that. Very much. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Christelle Pellecure, and you have been listening to Black Adoptees Identities, where Black adult adoptees share their stories. Please do share and subscribe to our podcast and do stay connected with us by following us on Instagram at Black Adoptees Identities. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and until next time, goodbye.